Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm excited to be joined by Joanna Coles. Joanna is currently at CBS News, where she serves as the creative advisor to CBS This Morning. She was the chief content officer of Hearst Magazines. She oversaw more than 300 publications around the world. Um, before that, she was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan and also Marie Claire. I understand you had a very clear interest in journalism when you were very, very young. In fact, I heard when you were 12 years old, you and a friend published your own magazine and you sent it to Queen Elizabeth. I did. I, I, cre I, I loved journalism. I loved clipping things out of magazines and sticking them together. And then I thought, why am I clipping out other people's things? Why don't I do my own magazine, which I did with a friend. We forced our fathers to Xerox it, and then we dropped it off at all the neighbours. And then we had the idea of sending it to Queen Elizabeth, who's oddly still the same queen now, and this really was a long amazing. time ago. Um, Anyway, the thrilling thing was that we actually got a letter back from her lady-in-waiting saying that Her Majesty had thoroughly enjoyed our magazine and was looking forward to future issues, uh, which was, <laughs> frankly, all the encouragement I needed. And so I sort of leapt in headfirst. So you, you had this inspiration, the, the, the lady-in-waiting, the Queen responded, and then at 17, you won a national writing contest with an essay about the dangers of the melting polar ice cap. Good Lord, I can't. Remember. I didn't know that you knew that. Um, so you've had good people. I'm very doing well researched. Research. Absolutely, yeah, that, is, that is good research because I'd almost forgotten about that. Um, yes, and actually, I think one of the great things about growing up then uh, in the 70s/80s was um, that we didn't actually have smartphones, so you had plenty of solitude and plenty of boredom. And truthfully, I used to just write essays, random essays, for something to do on a Sunday afternoon, because otherwise I would have to go out for a hike with my parents. <laughs> um, and so I did write an essay about what turned out to be climate change. I just and, didn't know that's what it was. Yeah, and it... it you, you won a contest with that essay, yeah, and I assume that, that that got you writing more. And you kind of talk about how you kind of became a reporter, and what you know, how did you build kind of your early reporting skills? So you're you're still in high school at 17 years old. Yeah, and it was published in then a national n newspaper. And um, in fact, what happened was then the local Green Party, as it was known, I grew up in in Yorkshire in Britain, uh, came knocking on the door and asked if I would like to stand as a local councillor. And actually, wow. that was sort of my sliding doors moment. I sometimes wish I had done it. Um, but my parents were hysterical and like, absolutely not, you have to go to college. So I went to college. And then when I left college, I joined as a graduate trainee a magazine called The Spectator, which is a bit like the British equivalent of The New Yorker. I did that for a couple of years, and then I moved to The Daily Telegraph to become a reporter. And at the time, The Daily Telegraph was actually the biggest broadsheet in the world. And my nightmare job was I did the evening shift. I clocked in at 6 o'clock in the evening clocked out at three in the morning and ran what was known as the graveyard shift, but it's where you got the best possible experience. You were deploying correspondence globally and uh, you were waking up correspondence in, in Britain when other news stories other new broke. stories were developing. And yeah, we had a lot of stories. We had Lockerbie. I mean, it were, that was a terrible story to cover, but incredibly interesting from a, a news perspective. 
I then left the Telegraph to go to the Guardian, right. and then the Guardian posted me to New York as the New York bureau chief, which is one of the great jobs in British journalism because you literally get to travel across America uh, writing about what you want. And of course, there's some news coverage, but essentially you can find themes, trends, go to places that interest you and talk to people. And it's the most wonderful license being a reporter to just ask people questions. And there isn't the usual barrier and the time frame of getting to know people. You just have this license to let your curiosity roam wild. And it was the most wonderful job so at, experience. At that stage, I mean, that sounds like a, you're, you're young, you've been moved, you, you grew up in Britain, you went to school there, you moved over to New York, and now you're traveling around the United States. What did you learn in those years? I mean, you covered everything from school shootings to serious economics. Um, yeah, you and covered so everything. You, you covered everything. Great. And so what did, you, what did you learn, you know, in those years kind of traveling around the United States? Um, and, and it had to be, you know, you're writing for a British paper, you know, in the United States, it had to be a different had to be a different lens. Yeah, well, it's a great question, what did I learn? I mean, you learned that the country was very divided. You learned that it, it was dominated by... You learned the divide between city and rural, urban and rural. Um, and you learned that, that actually everybody has a story and everybody wants to talk. And that's the skill set that actually has become incredibly helpful, I think, in this current climate where... Um, where actually people don't feel heard and people go on social media to have their voices heard. And this was all pre-social media when I was doing the bulk of the reporting. Um, but you learn that everybody has a story, everybody wants to be heard, and no one feels sufficiently listened to. And so how is social media impacting reporting like that? I mean, everybody has a story, everybody wants to be heard, but one of the things you know, that also happens is there's a blurring between what is news, reporting news like you were doing in social media, and they get blurred, right. and it's hard to distinguish between the two. How, how is that affecting you know, the, the art, the skill, you know, the veracity of real old-time reporting? Well, I often think that the great American inventions are always two-sided. So if you think about t television, mm -hmm. you know, wonderful, except that it made people couch potatoes, it told great stories, but the flip side is you stop getting out there and, and living your own life. You think about the car, a fantastic vehicle for, for journeys, but pollutes the environment, and again, stops people walking and exercising. And then you think of social media, which again, allows people to tell their stories, but there are no real checks and balances on it at the moment, which is one of the problems. Um, and it's impacted, I mean, it, in many ways, it's been fantastic for journalism. It allows people to find sources. You can sure. do incredible deep dives on Twitter in particular. It's an extraordinary vehicle for surfacing real news very quickly. It's also a great uh, vehicle for, for spreading false news, as we've, as we've seen recently. You ultimately left The Guardian and joined Hearst. And you were first the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, and then you were the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. And, you know, you really, as I read and, you know, did the research, you know, with my team and talked, you, you really took that editor job to a new level, and you really changed content in a magazine for a female audience. I mean, it was what, what you did, you know, with those publications at the time was, was really different. Can you talk about kind of the innovation and the change of those platforms and how you thought about it. When, what was that? And that was, that was pretty provocative and, 
and changing. You know, yeah, well, it, I mean, crazily, it was seen as revolutionary, the idea that women could be intelligent. And because I didn't have a background in women's magazines, it never dawned on me that this would be an issue, which is value to having an outsider come in and do something. And then I thought, well, women are interested in mascara and the Middle East. Why can't we have both in one place? And everybody thought this was the most extraordinary thing they'd ever heard. But we were able to, by stealth, and we referred to it as feminism by stealth, this was back in 2006, before the reawakening of feminism really began, to start seeding stories. And we started covering a lot of stories about women in Afghanistan or in, or, or in the Middle East who weren't getting any coverage at all. And it's hard to think, this is only 12 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's just not that long that's ago. That's right. the thing that's amazing. Yeah. It's really extraordinary. And yeah. that's one of the things that social media has changed because the people that felt left out of the mainstream media took to social media to tell their own stories and thank goodness they did because it turns out there were many more people that we were just never hearing from. So I was going to say look this this issue I know it's important to you it's important to me we've talked about it before the issue of gender diversity you know you said earlier this year we all have to be open to hiring people that don't look like us that don't sound like us and not find that threatening. How do we overcome that? Sadly, you know, I think, I think people still, there's been lots of discussion of that, but people still gravitate to, uh, to things that are easy or are comfortable, and that's right. you know, more the same. How do we, how do we overcome that? Um, how do we change you know, those perceptions? How can we continue to make progress? Well, I think it's, um, you know, first of all, I think you have to look at your current hiring practices and mm -hmm. figure out where do they, you know, where are they working and what are you lacking? And then I think you have to change them up and you have to embrace change and you have to feel comfortable talking to people that literally don't sound like you and might be a bit threatening. And, um, and then you learn, for the most part, that actually this is really impactful to the bottom line. It creates a completely different working environment and that it's good for everybody. But you have to look in different places and it may take more time. And I think the problem with business is everybody's under pressure, everybody feels there isn't enough time, everybody feels stressed. There's a sort of level of frenzy that hangs over a business and you're trying to always get things done as efficiently as possible. And it may mean that you take risks on people who don't pan out. Yeah. And it may mean you have to go and spend time creating relationships with new colleges or new companies where you don't actually have any of those tentacles. Yeah. And that's time consuming. And you may have to invest in new people in your HR department, which is also time consuming. But hiring's the most important thing anybody here will ever do because it impacts everything around you. And it needs to be given much more attention than I think it is. I think HR departments are really, or HR slash recruiting, are probably among the last departments in companies that need real disruption. I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, what you said is 100%, right? You have to be willing to kind of say, let's try something different. And you also have to be willing to say, oops, that didn't work, let's right. try it different again, and it's okay. You've gotta fail sometimes to move forward. Right, and the first time you try something different doesn't mean it will work, and no. this is the obvious solution. No. And no. then I think being frank with other colleagues that, you know, and talking to people and saying, this isn't quite working, do any of you have any other ideas? Yeah. Turning to Snap for a minute, you're one of two women on the board of Snap, and Snap, I think, gives you a very, very unique window into Silicon Valley, just given the, the visibility of that company and the, the, the prominence of that company at the moment. But looking broadly on the same topic, looking broadly across Silicon Valley, what have you observed or seen around this, this same topic of diversity, inclusion, 
you know, openness. Where is Silicon Valley and what have you kind of seen through the lens of sitting on the board of SNAP? Well, clearly there's a lack of diversity uh, there. It's really fascinating how many more companies are founded by men than there are by women. Um, and that men, ha I mean, I hate to generalize like this, but I'm really fascinated by the scale of men's ambition compared to some young women I know who've founded companies out there. I don't want to say that women can't found really aggressively. Of course they can, but right now, mm -hmm. um, there's less of that going on, and we know the reasons why. It's harder for women to raise funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's definitely a problem of diversity, huge problem of diversity in engineering, because fewer women are now going to college for engineering than even were 10, 15 years ago. So it's a real pursuit to find uh, women engineers. The part about engineers is really interesting. We see that. You know, Goldman Sachs, 40,000 people, 10,000 engineers. Right. The place where we're having the most difficult time making progress on all these issues is initial hiring of engineers. Um, and we're, you know, we're trying to think about the funnel differently, but it's, you know, amplify that, you know, across all of tech in Silicon Valley. It's a, that's a big issue for sure. Right, and a lot of the companies are founded by young men who hire their friends who are loyal to them and think that they're smart. And so that becomes the founding C-suite, if you like, even though there are only four or five employees. And then they end up staying for a long part because usually they're loyal and the founder wants loyal people around them. Founders are um, young. Self-awareness right. when you're young is not as good as self-awareness is as you get older, I'm right? I'm mean, some very unself-aware old By the way, there are older saying, people that aren't self-aware too. They're general, yeah. generalizations, absolutely. But it's, I mean, you can see the dynamic, you know, a group of people, you know, in their college dorm yeah, and are, it's are, are starting a business and it's, that's going to be a different, there's going to be a different thought process behind that right. than there would be if somebody was 40 years old. Yeah, then if you're yeah. running IBM. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about social media. And you, you brought up some of the goods and bads, but social media, and particularly Facebook at the moment, under an enormous you know, amount of pressure. And there's a lot of discussion about privacy concerns, election meddling, and just these platforms, how do they work? As you said, they're a little bit unchecked. You know, Evan Spiegel has been critical of Facebook, and he's had a different approach to a bunch of this. The first time I met Evan, we ended up having a really long and very profound conversation about what the future of information online was. And this was about four and a half years ago. And he just said, look, most of the stuff out there online is crap. We want to build a system within Snap where that's not what the case is. And he was extremely mindful of what no one was calling fake news back right. then, but he fully understood what it was. And he is an extremely thoughtful philosopher around these issues. I think employee number 10 was actually um, a sociologist, Nathan, who's a sort of in-house sociologist who really thinks about how people use social media. And Evan's sort of mantra internally has always been that we don't think of the world and we don't think of users as a market, we think of it as a society. You know, we all have to live together as a society. Why do you want to introduce something that would really disrupt that in a negative way? But, but the real answer to your question um, that, that's the sort of context, but is actually that the design architecture of Snap is completely different to that of Facebook. Mm -hmm. So really, we don't have those issues. It's a much more of a closed platform, and I was very involved in the thinking around the beginning of the discovery uh, platform. How, how many of the audience are actually on Snap? Okay, good. So a lot of you. So you understand what the Discover platform is, which for those of you aren't, it's really where millennials get a lot of their news. And it, it's from 
uh, trusted Daily Mail, well, whatever, um, the Daily Mail's on there, um, but essentially trusted media brands that bring you information, and that was always the goal, so you knew the source of the information, and that's still the case. Yeah. Let's get to your book. Talk about your book a little bit. Love Rules, How to Find a Real Relationship in a Digital World. You know, talk about, talk about the book and talk about a little bit. I mean, you're known you organize events, you try to get people to meet organically. You know, talk a little bit about how you think technology is impacting personal relationships and interactions, kind of why you wrote the book and your thesis behind it. So look, I mean, it's fantastic that you can meet um, people through your devices. And I really set off to write the book for a a variety of reasons, but one of which is we are facing an epidemic of loneliness and these devices which were supposed to connect us uh, both connect us and isolate us at the same time and in terms of them being an unbelievably useful arrow in your quiver to meet someone they can also feel like an utterly dispiriting experience uh, as you're scrolling through or swiping right or left. And they don't come with operating instructions. So it's very easy to feel overwhelmed by them or end up uh, feeling like you're getting absolutely nowhere, despite the fact, in theory, you're being matched by algorithms which mm-hmm. should be able to do it more efficiently. And if you've just moved to a new place, why wouldn't you try something like this? They can be incredible t- tools for connecting. Um, So I wanted to create some operating instructions around it because there's also a lot of statistical evidence that they can be dangerous if you don't use them properly. And what's really fascinating, and there's a lot of science in the book, and I had a full-time researcher looking at the science of digital behavior, is that people do behave um, with much more abandon uh, online, especially when they're getting to know each other in a, a sort of intimate online relationship. And things escalate much faster online than they ever would do if you meet someone in the flesh. And also what was happening is that when you connect with someone online, often you spend an enormous amount of time flirting back and forth Uh, and thinking that this means something when in fact it doesn't mean anything at all and that it can be a total and utter waste of your time and you don't really know who you're connecting with at all and I hear ripples of recognition out there. Um, Well the world's I mean the world's the world's changed I mean it's it's you know well, the world has changed, and yet 30, people... 30 years ago, if you want... hasn't changed. No, that hasn't changed, but right, that re- what's, there, what is there is a difference. What is that? that's, that's, that's just what my, that that's my mannerism. That, that's your mannerism? Yeah, it's just something I, it's just something I do. you several times. Well, it's just something I do. You shouldn't take it personally. Um, if you wanted to go on a date 30 years ago, okay, you still had all the issues of finding somebody to want to go on a date with, but you had, the only way you could go on a date... The only way was to pick up the phone and call someone or to stand face-to-face in front of them and say, hey, let's go on a date. And talking to somebody is completely different than texting with them. Yeah, I mean, texting course. is the lowest form of communication right. you know, known, to, known to the human race. Right. And so your, your point that it doesn't, that it doesn't means, it, it, it does mean something different when you actually have to talk to someone, hear the response, see their, their body inflect, you know, the way they react, it is different. Yeah, of course, and, yeah. that, and that's sort of my point, yeah. that, that people were thinking that they were having a relationship with someone online who they'd never spoken to on the phone 
or um, hadn't ever met in the flesh. And what really hasn't changed, of course, the ways of, of initially connecting with people have changed and are much better. I mean, thrilling that you don't have to spend a night on your own if you don't want to, fantastic. Uh, but the, um, the urge for intimacy and connection still very much exists. And these, these apps, if not used with thought Correctly, and care, yeah. yeah, can leave you feeling like you're utterly disposable. And so there's very practical advice in the book about, you know, the essential nature of having to call someone. Now, I know most millennials would rather stab themselves in the eyes with needles than have to pick up a telephone. But you will know within five minutes of a conversation on the phone if this person is worth your time meeting them in the flesh. And then, of course, if you've spent, uh, you know, and I think the average number of texts is between 250 and 750 before people actually decide to have an arrangement where they meet in the flesh, which is an enormous amount of time. It's also, wow. it's also an enormous amount of hope and expectation and excitement. And then frequently, as some of you in this room will know, crushing disappointment yeah. Yeah. if you meet someone in the flesh and you've had all that build up and then in fact it's it's not worth anything yeah you announced your departure earlier this year from Hearst while standing on your famous treadmill desk walk me through that no pun intended you know what I you know should I get one yes okay you should all have a treadmill desk they are really fun the treadmill desk was my hack of actually having I would put my computer on it so that right. I would always do my emails from it so that that would ensure that I would actually be working and walking at the same time um look sitting is the new smoking we all know this no it's question really bad for you and it's fun having a treadmill desk and I got it and this is going to sound name droppery because I was in Stacy Snyder's office at DreamWorks and she was running DreamWorks at the time and she had one and I was like oh she's the most glamorous successful woman I know I want one so I immediately got one when I decided to leave Hearst it felt sensible to talk about the miles I had walked on this damn treadmill so would and, you literally um, would literally when you're at your desk are you constantly walking or sometimes you just have it off and you're standing there like I use well, a standing you know, desk yeah a combination yeah. a, a com combination of the two but how much do you walk well when I first got it, I started walking at 4.5 miles an hour, which turns out is far too fast. And all my emails were misspelled, and people were sort of, and I was constantly. And you're huffing in a and puffing on the phone, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was constantly in a sweat. It was not a good scene. Um, so actually, I consulted some other people, including a huge treadmill desk fanatic who writes books on it, Susie mm. Orlean. And she said that 1.5 to 1.8 was the right speed. And of course, as with everything, it turns out there's a community of treadmill desk users. So <laughs> I, I, I got into the community and discovered that this is actually the right pace. So it's about 1.8. And you can do pretty much anything walking at 1.8. It's yeah. just a question of the heel. It's got to be really good for you. Talk a little bit about how you'd say the media world has changed for better and how it's changed for worse over the course of your career. Good Lord. How long do we have? Um, uh, well, look. 16 minutes, 28 seconds. I, I, can, I can talk about it from the perspective of what I did, which was when I got to Marie Claire and when I got to Cosmo, it was very clear that print was... Um, in, in decline, it was frankly mm. in decline, and we had to figure out new brand extensions around it. So we did television shows, and then we put it on Snapchat, and we really dug deep into the digital uh, world and introduced Cosmo and Marie Claire to a completely new generation of users. And we had enormous fun actually creating it for Snapchat with the conceit that essentially 
the viewer or the, the reader on Snap was sort of waking up in the morning, wanted to be amused, was possibly a little hungover and a bit confused <laughs> what had gone on the night before, needed to check in urgently with her friends. Um, but we were able to bring in a lot of, uh, you know, interesting news, sure. all sorts of information. We actually did an amazing episode where we took over the whole thing and did it from a refugee camp in Jordan. So it was a wonderful vehicle to be able to keep these incredibly powerful and trusted media brands alive where the reader was. And you were able to be the friend of the reader or the, the viewer or the, the user uh, wherever they went. And so the exciting thing for trusted media brands is that there are now many, many ways to reach the, the reader or the viewer. Uh, you can be with them where they are. They don't have to be at 6.30 in their homes looking at a big square box. They can just do it wherever they are. But that means that you are producing an enormous amount of content and it's expensive to produce good right. content. You know, journalism doesn't... Good journalism may take time. You may need to throw bodies at it. It's incredibly uh, expensive. And we have to think very carefully about the financing of this because the business models around it are really challenged. Yeah. So I'm going to do a quick lightning round with you, just a handful of quick, short bullet questions, bullet answers. First place you look for your news? Mm, really Twitter. Okay. Journalist you most admire? Oh, there are so many of them. I mean, hard not to admire someone like Martha Gellhorn just because she just was this swashbuckling character and she got to marry Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> if, you could, if you could interview anyone living or dead, who would that be? Well, actually, one of my favorite interviews, I got the first interview with O.J. Simpson after he was found not guilty. Really? Yeah, and that was a pretty interesting uh, moment. He came actually very brilliantly. His people rolled him out to the Oxford Union, which was his first public appearance. And um, I remember sitting next to him at a dinner we had before he went on to talk to the Oxford Union, which in, in British culture is one of the sort of most important hallowed places. And there was a huge outcry about him having been invited. And he had this huge water glass in his hand with a really, really thick bottom. And I, I said to him, why did you think that Nicole, his former wife, had found it necessary to put pictures of herself beaten up in a uh, safety deposit box with a sort of note saying, if anything happens to me, I think it will be OJ that, that did it. And he was holding the glass and the entire glass shattered in 2000. I remember pieces. that now. Yeah. yeah, it just went everywhere. Yeah. Um, so in a way, at the time, that was the person that everybody wanted to interview and it yeah. was a really fascinating evening. Yeah. So it will be hard to top that just because of the timeliness of it. Yeah. Last great book you read. Uh, well, I'm reading uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming mm -hmm. book at the moment, and also I'm reading um, Small Fry, the Steve Jobs's Lisa Brennan Jobs's yes. book, which is also uh, very good. And I just finished Beautiful Boy, um, D David Sheff's book about mm -hmm. his drug addicted yeah. son, all of which are very good, all memoirs actually, but all yeah. really compelling. Yeah. Best piece of advice you know you've ever received? Well, I've thankfully received many pieces of advice. Probably the best one is hire to your weakness and hire the best people you can possibly find and let them get on with it. Good advice for all of us. And so, thank you. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you thank very you. much. Thank Absolutely. you very much. This podcast was recorded on November 27th, 2018. 
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.